Welcome to Inside My Canoe Head, a podcast about the art of living an awesome life. We talk about preparedness, self-reliance, and learning to be unapologetically you in this chaotic and incredible world we live in today. My name is Jeff, your host. I am a veteran, an academic, an emergency preparedness guru, and we issue weekly episodes, usually on Mondays, about a various different topics. Join us, hang out with us. It's a lot of fun. Come visit us on the web at www.preparednesslabs.ca, and let's get to it. All right, thanks for joining us back here at Inside My Canoe Head. This week, we're going to talk about COVID-19, communication, and why the government has it all wrong. We're going to talk about lack of trust. We're going to talk about government authority and reality. A little communication 101 for you. And in the end, obviously, we're going to wrap her up with some talk about conspiracy theories. So grab your favorite beverage and hang on. All right. First of all, we have to talk about a lack of trust in the public intelligence. And this comes from a lot of the academic writing and the gray literature that exists on communications theory and what we know about the emergency management, emergency preparedness industry as a profession. They, they're very much into a hierarchical thinking. They think in command and control, kind of like the military does. And and it comes across as we know what is best. We know what to do in an emergency. Just listen to us and everything will be fine. It's almost a point, but not quite, of questioning our cognitive ability as individuals to process complex and difficult information and then make an informed choice. So you can see there's that dichotomy between the command and control. Things are going pear-shaped. I got to jump in right now. Just listen to me. I know what I'm doing, aka public health advice, versus the informed, intelligent human individual who is looking for public health advice and then will take that into account in accordance with their own lives and situation that they have around them and then they'll make what we'd like to determine is an informed choice that best suits them and their role as a member of society. Now that does not seem as that complex of a task but when you see when the information comes across and especially when the government is habitually adding a dire warning to it when they're habitually making it a catastrophic event. And when you look at the academic research into why people make decisions around preparedness and emergencies, when you look at crisis communications theory, it tells you very, very much that if you frame it in a catastrophic event format, the individuals receiving it will be far less likely to accept and that's based on two principles. The first principle is if you make something sound catastrophic and horrific for the recipient, they will enter the denial phase. They will deny that it's actually going to happen because it seems so large and so final. The second part is if it's catastrophically huge, then you're telling the individual that their own efforts, they can't achieve and break it on their own. They can't come out the other side successful. And therefore you're telling the individual that their own personal abilities aren't enough. And as a result of that, that individual is going to just walk away from that message. Now that second part is a little bit controversial, but the studies that I look at and the work that I'm doing now in my own research tells me that individuals who face those catastrophic messaging 
need to have a feeling within the messaging that they have the ability to be successful on their own merit and that all that the government is doing or the authority is providing them the necessary information and guidance to make that informed choice. If it comes across as listen to me or everything will fall apart message, you fail. You fail on the point of delivery of that message. The second part that comes up a lot of the times is discussions you will see, you know, on the side and in Facebook, never argue with somebody on Facebook, but that's a different uh, podcast altogether. Uh, you see a lot of discussion on government authority versus reality. And so you have a misconception out there in the public between what the government actually is allowed to do under legislative authority that they enact versus what the public thinks the government's limit of authority should be. And because they're not the same, people get exceptionally upset. So in other words, if you're an individual who is getting angry at the fact that the government is overreaching, you first have to understand whether the government is actually overreaching or they're following their legislative authority. Now, if they have the legislative authority to do what they're doing and enforce the rules they're putting out, they're not overreaching. What is happening is you are looking at the action and you're saying, according to my beliefs and my personal idea of the limitations of what government should be able to do, this is a violation. So what we have is a gap between what you think the government should be able to do and what the government is actually able to do. Now, I'm going to speak to the province of Ontario and Canada and the Emergency Powers Act that was invoked and a state of emergency was put into place by the provincial government and what that actually allows them to do. They are indirectly able to suspend some civil rights, but as with all civil rights suspensions and all interventions into an individual's legally defined rights, there's an extent to which that is lawful in a free and democratic society. But the only way that that gets tested is when somebody challenges the existing law in court. When somebody, when the government does something they believe is within their legislative power under emergency measures, and then the individual who is the recipient of that action then files a court case and, and attempts to get an injunction to stop the government from doing that, that's when our third branch of government our judiciary steps in and makes that cognitive decision as to whether what the government's doing is lawful. And we have a prime example in Toronto, and everybody's seen the, the barbecue revolution on TV, but it's a great concept of what people believe in overreach because under public health emergency, uh, they stay, the, the government of, of Toronto, the mayor of Toronto and the council of Toronto, public health of Toronto, have the authority to put out regulations that make certain businesses close. They have the authority. Whether, now, this is not about whether you agree with that or not. This is a legislative authority that they have, and they can do that. The problem what's happened in the barbecue revolution story is that individual's private property has been seized without compensation. So the government has gone in, boarded up the business, changed the locks. So by changing the locks and denying entry to the legal owner, that is an equivalent to seizing that individual's private property. And as I, I may be wrong, but as of right now, I do not believe the government is providing compensation as a result 
of that seizure of private property. And that's where a lot of us look at it and say, okay, I get you put the rules up. This guy didn't agree with it. You stepped in violently, but fair enough, you stepped in and you enforced the rules. You went a step further and you seized his private property. I don't agree with that. I think that is government overreach and he's going to challenge that in court. Now, courts will determine whether the government has the right to seize your private property without compensation under public health rules. And that's an example of what I said earlier about the difference between what you think the government should be able to do in an emergency situation under emergency powers and what the government can actually do do. So there's going to be a difference there. And that's where we need the courts to step in. And this is a perfect case. Not that I'm on one side or the other of the barbecue revolution guy, but somebody had to eventually stand up and challenge these laws. Every time a government extends some law that extends into your freedoms and into your rights, it has behoved us as members of the citizenry to push back and test the limits of that law. And it's not because we don't like government. It's because you have to protect your individual rights against the zealousy of government under the auspices of we know what's best. And, and we see the same thing come up in the mass debates. And I mean, don't forget that the reality of public property is just that a Walmart or a Costco or a private business is private property. It's not public space. And because of that, it is governed by the regulation. So if the individual business owner says, you have to wear a mask to come into my store uh, and you choose not to wear a mask, he has every right to ask you to leave. And if you fail to leave, then you are in fact trespassing on private property. You don't have a right to not wear a mask in a place who has deemed it necessary to wear a mask. You have the right to leave the place and not have your business there. Fair enough. That is well within your authority to do so. And then we got to think about how do we communicate? How do we communicate? Call it communicate 101, call it communication theory, call it how human beings build relationships and community. We think of this often as uh, every time that you see a crisis happen in a business, you see they hire a crisis communications firm, you have public relations officers in most businesses, you have them in the government, you have, they call the senior the senior minister's communication officer, and they all come different titles. I mean, we jokingly call them spin doctors because a lot of times that's what they do. They spin the political or the positive side of an event or a message to ensure that they try to change the conversation to something better. Uh, in crisis communication, you'll hear the theory of always get out in front of the problem. That's why you see some CEOs who nail it, get out front, desperately apologize, make sure they make it right and do all the things. And then you see the bad side of it, like the BP oil executive in the Gulf of Mexico, when they had that spill, he came up to the mic and he was just angry and said, I just want my life back. Uh, that's probably not a good reason. And that's probably why he's not the CEO of BP oil. But the point being here is that there is a way to communicate that, that helps us all out. And one of the key messaging in communication theories they tell you is that the message that you're sending out, especially when you have a power differential. And what I mean about power differential is we call it linking social capital, but a power differential is when you have, say, a government to a citizenry, when the individual sending the message out has a position of power over the recipient of it. The message needs to, will be far more accepted if the audience is not being lectured 
two. So in other words, it's proven, well, proven as far as science does prove things, that the individual receiving the message will be far more likely to accept and trust the information that they are receiving if they get if they don't get the feeling that they're being lectured to. If they get the feeling they're being lectured to, that is one of the fastest ways to disconnect people from authority. So when the government is coming out and they're passing important public health messages that is aimed at keeping everybody safe, they have to make sure and avoid at all times that they are lecturing to the quote-unquote dumb simpleton public who just don't get it. Why don't people listen to me? And you get attitudes like that that come out after a while. And, the, and you wonder why you know societies and groups of people don't listen. And as well, you have to offer evidence. You have to offer evidence for the advice you're giving as best as you possibly can. Wear a mask, why? What is the evidence to wear a mask? Why are we closing these type of businesses? Here is the evidence why we're closing them. This is our game plan. This is how long we think we need to close them for. And if we get it right, this is what we think it'll look like when we're done. That kind of evidence based upon what you know and what you believe will happen and why you believe that will happen. You're explaining your case. You're not lecturing to the individuals. And it's very important. Another point that comes up in communication theory a lot is you need to leverage on an individual's social capital. You need to leverage on an individual's desire to help those within their community and to care about the people around them. So if the message is framed in a sense that the individual is going to help his or her neighbors, their colleagues, their family members by doing this. In other words, if we all do this together, we will help each other. We're in this in a collective event. It's the positive way of sending across the typical message you hear we're all in this together well you actually all have to be in it together and you don't have to have a different stage of 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 levels you know if you're rich you can get this way if you're poor you have to do this way that type of thing but the end result is and and the England had a great message for a while it was called don't kill granny and the idea was, yes, you're young. Yes, you'll probably be perfectly fine and maybe a cough and a little chest pain when it comes to COVID-19, but you could bring it home and you're going to kill your grandmother. So let's not kill granny. That kind of message that was about leveraging the social capital. You've got vulnerable members of your family, so therefore you need to take extra work. It's not you, the healthy young individual by statistics, that's really going to have a problem. It's the vulnerable members of our population, and together we can help protect the prop. You know, that kind of messaging that leads directly to your social capital, your belief and your bonds towards those people you care about. But another most important part and I, and I stress this in many of my podcast episodes, is simplicity. Absolute, unquestioned simplicity. Your message has to be consistent and it has to be simple. And something along the lines of what I have said all along is why the, the provincial government in the province of Ontario and the federal government in Canada have been failing miserably in their public health care messages is it's been changing and it's been different. If it was simply from the beginning, you need to wear a mask. You need to stay six feet away from other people. And you need to keep your number of contacts down as low as possible. Full stop. And then go on and carry it on the rest of your life and have a great time. If that simple kind of messaging was what was 
repetitive, which was, was consistently given out. A lot of that element was, but it was surrounded by a whole bunch of other noise, noise in the communication environment that drowned out the simplistic messages, what we wanted to get across. Half an hour news conferences, 45 minute news conferences to talk about statistics that matter zero, absolutely zero to anybody. And I can sit here and throw study after study after study at you to tell you that individuals do not respond to cataclysmic studies and graphs. They don't. There's no evidence that by putting up a graph showing if you don't do something, they will die. It doesn't work. That's not flattening the curve. I'm talking about these catastrophic death and other things that they throw up. So anyhow, the point being is that you need to keep it simple. You need to keep the message simple and consistent. Now, your different levels of government should be sending different messages because the federal government of Canada is going to be talking about one thing. The provincial government is going to be talking about healthcare and education. And your city government is going to talk about city services and city businesses inside there. And as long as your three levels of government stay in their lanes, their messages may be different but their messages should be consistent and then we know where to go. If I want to talk about education, I'm not going to the city of Ottawa's website. I'm going to go to the Department of Education in the provinces because they own education. Oh, here's my message on education that I need. But when you start seeing provinces and the federal government stepping on each other's toes, most of the time for political points, you start to see a confusion in that message. And as soon as people see a confusion in the message, they're going to pick an authority. They're going to find somebody they trust. And sometimes that's going to be google.ca or google.com, which unfortunately is where we end up with these ridiculous individuals who say that there are little bugs in the vaccine. So last and fun part that I want to talk about is conspiracy theories. So why do conspiracy theories exist? Well, they only endure and become reality as a government's failure to communicate. It's really not more complex than that. Government... Conspiracy theories grow out of spaces and gaps in information that is allowed to fester and is not filled. So if the government had a simple and consistent message and they didn't change that message other than scientific evidence-based changing and it was consistent and it was sent out over all the mediums and tailored to the individual groups that needed to target, you would not create a gap in the information flow. And by creating a gap in the information flow and the confusing messages, which all levels of government have done consistently since this started, you raise space for conspiracy theories. And I'll give you a fine example. We've seen that uh, lots of talk lately on the news about the fact that Costco is open selling toys, but the small toy guy has to close. Obviously, everybody sees that. Everybody wonders why the government is allowing Costco to sell toys, but not the small guy. And then you start to see the argument of where, well, hold on a second. It's because Costco and Walmart and the big box stores are funding and biased and they're lobbying and they're saying all the right things and the small business can't lobby. So now you see a conspiracy that the government has been somehow purchased by big box stores to ensure that they remain open through a pandemic in an effort to help squash the small business and get them out of the way so you see big box succeed. You see how I just weave that in there? Obviously, that's a ridiculous idea, but that's how conspiracy theories grow. When you have space and gap in the messaging that people are allowed to fill. There doesn't need to be evidence there. People just need to believe it's a possibility. 
to be true. And then they will possibly, they'll just believe it. They'll believe that there's be people out there that will take that gap and run with it as a conspiracy theory. Another issue that the government runs into is when you have a complicated message and a tiered set of rules that ends up with a have and a have not. In other words, some people are gaining and more successful in business as a result of the pandemic and some are losing as a result of the pandemic. As soon as you create an us and them, a have and a have not, that opens up the idea that there must be a hidden agenda. I mean, the great reset theory, then the great, you know, the 2030 reset, which time for all, all of this comes out of the fact that through this pandemic, as people believe, as a result of government actions, there is a group of society who is leveraging their ability to influence government, and therefore they're doing exceptionally well as a result of a pandemic, and there's another group that don't have that lobbying capacity, and therefore they're doing exceptionally poor in the pandemic. You've opened up that audience. You've opened up that space for somebody to fill it with a conspiracy theory. And if you're somebody who is on the lower end, who is not winning in this pandemic from an economic perspective, you can very easily look at a rigged system. And then we start talking about rigged systems. We start talking about bias in the system. And then we start talking about identity politics. And you can start to see how something as simple as a gapped message can lead to fighting discrimination that that doesn't exist but it's said to have existed because there's a gap in the message and another thing that comes up is it's it's true when you look especially at the u.s government as a result of 9-11 and the u.s patriot act western governments rarely ever give up powers that are gained in states of emergencies when those states of emergencies are over. In some way, shape, or form, the government has enjoyed the ability to have very wide-reaching influence, immediate influence, on activities in society. They're not going to want to give that up. Now, some governments will tell you they'll want to give that up, but it'll be written into some pretty cool legislation that's going to come down, and a lot of these authorities will be tested after the emergency is over. And because of that, and that's the history that exists, we now have people out there that believe that the government is going to put a permanent state of emergency in or something closely related to that, i.e. we're going to have COVID-19 impacts for years. People think that talk is setting up the conditions for an exceptionally long, several year-long state of emergency while we quote-unquote come out of the pandemic together, while we build back better, while we make society a far more equal place, but but just trust us to do that. We have to put all these restrictions in place so that we can get all the necessary framework in so that society does succeed when we come out the other end. All of that wording is perceived by the public to mean you are going to hang on to those powers. I mean, we gave you those powers. We we complied with the fact that we believed under a certain set of conditions that our liberties could be infringed upon for the greater good. And I think, especially in Canada, we, we, we're we a compliant population. We still believe that. We still believe that there are things that need to be curtailed in a pandemic. Uh, some other parts of the world don't see that. But at a certain point, doesn't matter whether the pandemic continues or not, people are going to start to say, okay, enough is enough. Uh, you've had your chance. It didn't work. So now it's time to reopen. And lastly, uh, yet I have yet to see a government address a conspiracy theory, and most of them dismiss them outright, almost with a bit of laughter and a bit of joke, un- misunderstanding the fact that those are tens of thousands of their citizens 
who have believed this conspiracy theory is likely a possibility due to the result of the lack of their communication from government. And, and because it exists out there, to dismiss it is to fuel it. If you are a government or you are in a position of power, remember what I talked about power brokerage, so power differential between two parties. If you have the power in a conversation and you dismiss or ignore concerns, however crazy they may be, of the person who is the target recipient of the message, you are going to dramatically tell this individual without question that, um, they're, they're just crazy and nuts. And then how do you get them to listen to messaging when they believe that? And the last part that comes out all the time, and I find it quite amusing, is that everybody who does not agree with public health uh, guidelines and how they're being employed are somehow right-wing, are somehow uh, you know right-wing radicals. Um, we're all members of Proud Boys, or we're some type of Trump supporters, or we're the deplorables, or you can come up with any word. And it's, it, it, it would be amusing if it wasn't so sad that every time somebody stands up to challenge a public health uh, edict that is put into place in a society, they're seen as right-wing, non-compliant. Uh, that kind of talk, you are segmenting a large portion of the population and you are dismissing their viewpoints. And I'll add mine in there. I am an exceptionally well-educated man who studies pandemics for a living, who studies emergency preparedness for a living, who owns a company that trains individuals on emergency preparedness, and I challenge the some of the public health edicts when they're put out. And the fact that somebody tells me that because I don't do it, I'm an uneducated right-wing wingnut, the danger in that is, is that uh, I can actually communicate the messaging about public health a little bit better than public health. And if I start communicating a different message, I may gain the airspace that they have and that people start paying attention to me on some other platform and not public health. So even if public health was to change their messaging, they have all 100% lost a section of society. And that society will be voice and difficult to deal with. So it is dangerous to dismiss individuals and it is dangerous to fail to address conspiracy theories and have a conversation about them out loud in front of everyone. So hopefully on today's episode, you got a little bit of information about uh, lack of trust, government authority, reality, a little communications 101. Got to talk about simplicity because I love it. And some conspiracy theories. Uh, this is the 25th episode of Inside My Canoe Head. It's a great anniversary to hit. I appreciate all of you folks hanging around and listening and if you have a comment or you have some suggestions for future episodes or anything you'd just like to throw my way, my email is jeff at preparednesslabs.ca. Drop over my website at www.preparednesslabs.ca or see me on Instagram, Inside My Canoe Head, or on Twitter, Inside Canoe Head. Thanks a lot for joining us uh, here on this episode, and stay safe and listen to your public health. It's not all bad.